Welcome to The Legendarium, brought to you by our amazing patrons. Uh, by the way, if you enjoy the show, please head to thelegendarium.com and uh, find a link to become a patron yourself. Today is another Author's Shelf episode. We've been doing a lot of these lately, which I refuse to apologize for because they're really, really great. Uh, it's quickly becoming my favorite series on the show, honestly. And today you'll get another reason as to why. But anyway, as a reminder, the Author's Shelf episode in this, or in this series, the Author's Shelf series, we invite a best-selling author onto the show, but instead of your typical interview, we ask them to pull a beloved or influential book from their shelf for us to read and discuss with them. Just a different way for us to get to know our favorite authors. Uh, today's book is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Not our typical fare, but just trust me, read the book if you haven't ever before. Read it, enjoy it, and listen to this episode anyway. It's okay. Uh, all right, let's introduce our panel. I'm your host, Craig Hanks, and over there, if you ever find her washed up on the shore from a sailing accident, well, it probably wasn't me. It's Stephanie Bruckman. Yeah, it was probably my own fault, so. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's fair enough. And I'm sure she would make a fine English housekeeper right up until she talked you out of an open third-story window. It's Allison Noel. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on. Very glad you're here, Allison. How are you doing today? Really good. Thanks. Excited to be here. Me too. Me too. Now, Allison, you're here um, in part uh, because you are promoting a new book that's coming out. What's the name of that book? Stealing Infinity. It'll be out next Tuesday, June 28th. June 28th. All right. So Stealing Infinity. We're going to talk about that for a few minutes at the end of the episode. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing a little bit about that, stick around. But for now, let's talk about Rebecca. I'll give you a little summary and then you can stop listening to me talk the whole time and we can get into it. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier is the 1938 gothic novel that tells the story of a young English woman, our unnamed narrator. While living abroad, she's caught up in a whirlwind romance with a widower, Maxim de Winter, who marries her and takes her back to his grand estate, Manderley. All is going well! Right up until we remember that this is a gothic novel, so of course it's not. The narrator is haunted, certainly figuratively and at times seemingly literally, by the ghost of Maxim's dead wife, Rebecca. Beautiful, talented, outgoing, Rebecca was beloved by everyone, by the townsfolk, the other gentry, the household staff, and especially Maxim himself. Our poor narrator feels like she'll never measure up. And so she gradually descends into paranoia, anxiety, perhaps even psychosis. What happened to Rebecca? Can Maxim ever love his second wife like he loved his first? And is the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, the most evil character I've read in a long time? Yes, she definitely is. But for the rest of it, you'll just have to pick up the book and find out. All right, so that is Rebecca. Allison, I'm going to ask you the same first question I ask everybody on the Author's Shelf series, which is, why did you pick this book? <laughs> Listen, this is my copy of Rebecca that is ancient, dog-eared. I've had it since high school, which was a really long time ago. And I remember reading it when I was younger and just being so pulled into the story, just completely enthralled. I'm pretty sure I faked sick so I could stay home from school and finish reading it. I would do that a lot when I loved a good book and I just didn't want to go to school. I needed to know how it ended. And um, yeah, it's, it's all the things you said. It's a, it's a character that, you know, sort of 
marries out of her station and ends up in this totally dreamy house. And it seems like your classic, oh, we're going to go on a Cinderella adventure story. This woman's been rescued by the dashing hero with the beautiful home and her life will be changed. And it certainly changed, just not in the way that the reader is expecting and certainly not in the way that uh, Mrs. the new Mrs. DeWinter is expecting. And there's so many twists and turns and dark corners and shadows and mysteries and a hint of the supernatural. And it just had all the ingredients I love. And I've read it throughout the years. I saw the most recent movie adaptation on Netflix. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of books I could have picked, but I just decided to go with this one. It also gives a little hint to like kind of what I was trying to do with Stealing Infinity, being that the character who's sort of out of her element there's everyone has a secret and no one's letting her in on. And so there's a certain, um, you know, conspiracy and paranoia that starts to develop. Is it me or is it them or what's really happening here? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you feel like this influenced you in a direct or at least indirect way then. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Stephanie, how did it go for you? Did you, had you read this one before or was this new to you? I had not. I had actually, my first introduction to Rebecca was the Netflix movie. Mm. I watched that one on Netflix that came out not too long ago. And so I had that idea. Um, so this is the first time I picked up the book. And I have to admit, I struggled getting through the book my <laughs> first time. Yeah. Um, up until probably about 60% of the way through. I don't know how much, I mean... I'm not as I'm not spoiling anything, right? I can, I can uh, talk. Don't give away the last fifty pages or so, but uh, yeah, go for it. Okay, it's about the time that Maxim actually admits what happened to Rebecca and what he mm. did, and that first real conversation he has with our narrator that finally changed my viewpoints of the book. Where you actually see the narrator come more into herself. It's that moment where she grows up. And that was the moment that I finally started relating to her as the narrator and going, okay, I can understand this as before it felt very childish um, with her, which I think is part of the point of, of the writing anyway, is that she is, she's very young with a, an older gentleman. And so that moment where she grows up is where I finally started connecting and enjoying mm -hmm. the book a lot more. I love how young how young she is in the beginning where she doesn't even know quite she she's so unsure of herself that she's unsure of what words to use or like what register to speak in. So she'll say something, like, oh yes, absolutely cracking. And then she'll immediately go, Why did I come on? Why did I no nobody says this, you know? Um, or whatever. I don't remember what the word was, but uh yeah, no, she's she does a lot of growing up in this book. Um you know what I was at the beginning of this book, what I was reminded of more than anything, and try not to laugh, Titanic. Um, so if Titanic had been a bleak, uh, dark, hopeless romance, because <laughs> at the beginning of it, it's um, we get this prologue where she, you know, I dreamed I was back at Mandalay or whatever the line is, I can't remember. But then she's going through this kind of like hollowed out, burned out old estate and you, she's remembering the grandeur of it. And it's very much like that scene in Titanic where they go down in the, with the submarine and they're getting the pictures and you get little flashes of how grand and wonderful it was. And then as they like the story then begins and she, uh, you know, she goes to the house or, you know, in Titanic, you go to the ship and you, you know, see how wonderful it was. 
and obviously they diverge <laughs> in their intent as stories. But I, I really enjoyed that beginning of it. Frankly, I was sucked in from the very beginning, if by nothing else, or if by nothing other than the writing, like, yeah. um, uh, what's a Daphne? Daphne du Maurier is really, really talented with her pro style. Yeah. Um, but anyway, all right. So Allison, um, we'll go through, we'll, we'll just do a, uh, like I said before, a freewheeling discussion. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious what, what, if, if I'm curious if there's something about this book that has kept you drawn to it. You said you came to it as a teenager, you know, you're reading it back in high school and you keep watching the adaptations and coming back. What is it about this story? Is it that main character? Is it the intrigue? Is it, you know, what, what really yeah, sucks it, you in? It's interesting. I mean, because my sort of relationship to the book has really changed. You know, I remember reading it as a teen and just being completely sucked into the world. And I think I, I also felt like she did. I felt like an outsider a lot of the time. I felt like I didn't really belong anywhere in particular. I felt like um, second guessing what I would say, you know, not really in charge of my my personhood. And, you know, so I could relate to her at that time. I mean, I think Rebecca, or she, she's not Rebecca, Mrs. De, the new Mrs. DeWinter, we never get her name, is, um, which I also find really interesting. We never learn her name. But, um, you know, I think she's very much a product of her time in that she is kept really young and naive from the world. There's so much she doesn't know. Um, and she's so dependent on other people just for her very livelihood. You know, we, we, we meet her and she's acting as a companion to this older woman who's not particularly nice to her. And then she goes from this woman who, you know, to Maxim, who really treats her like a child. And so to prepare for this podcast, um, I'm really busy on deadline right now. So I didn't have time to do a, re a reread of the book, but I did um, an audio listen to it. And the audio narration was great. It was a really good uh, narrator. But listening to Maxim, like in my ear, now as an adult, so many years later, like really listening to him, I was like, this guy is the worst. Like he's so patronizing to her and he's so belittling to her. And he knows how out of her element that she feels. And he he's not really very kind to her um, once they reach the house, you know, until a little bit later in the book. And then the dynamic of the relationship changes. And yeah, like Stephanie said, when she grows up, when, when she finally decides to grow up and sort of meet Maxim as an equal, he then begins to treat her as more of an equal. But I just like that kind of went over my head when I was younger and maybe that has to do with the times that I grew up in, um, you know, or the way that I was used to men interacting with women back then as compared to now, some of that was a little glaring to me. Um, but yeah, so I think like I've, I've experienced this book and this narrator in different ways through different times in my life. I find mm -hmm. the, the writing to be just really beautiful and extraordinary. Um, there's a lot of description that I wonder that um, the younger me could really get, would read Wuthering Heights and finish it and then go right back to page one. And I have a mm. much harder time with books like that today. 
because we storytelling has evolved and it happens quicker. And there's like, a you know, you don't get as bogged down in describing um, a field of flowers and things like that. But she really takes her time to paint the picture of this place. And it's really an extraordinary picture that she paints. And when you're in her words and reading her prose, you really feel like you are immersed in Manderley. And you are seeing it through the eyes of this this wide-eyed young person that doesn't feel she belongs there. And, um, you know, I had a great deal of sympathy for her as an adult um, following her journey. And a moment of cheering for her when she does finally step into her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the um, on the description point, um, the, the you know the prose, the flowery prose about the flowers or whatever. Yeah, uh, being a fantasy podcast and you know a, a Tolkien aficionado, believe me, I've heard every uh, possible iteration of you know he describes too many trees or whatever. <laughs> you know he, he he takes forever to describe things. And if I ever hear that from somebody who likes this book, I will throw it back in their face. Yes. Um, I, I actually, I really quite enjoy that style. Um, but I, I think I get what you're talking about where, you know, as much as I enjoy it, I have to recognize I have been conditioned, whether it's through TV and movies or through just the books that I tend to read, I've been conditioned to expect, okay, when's the next beat? When's the next plot point? And it's like, look, we're going to spend a chapter or maybe two chapters just kind of getting to know this character and her relationship to this particular spot in the manor, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, and that's okay. She writes it well enough that it, it kept me engaged. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, let me, let me run one thing past both of you. Uh, the, my, my grand insight from this book was I finally realized why so many stories are set in like even today you know uh my wife and i have been watching uh, bridgerton uh, oh, yeah. you know don't, don't tell my mother right uh <laughs> it's 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 so good i love bridgerton it's so good I but, I love- I, <laughs> but i realized why so many stories are set in kind of 19th century or maybe early 20th century england um with the uh, kind of the well-heeled upper class it because it lends itself to, so well to stories that depend on tension Mm -hmm. which is driven by miscommunication or just a total lack of communication Um, this is something that came up a lot when we when we did our wheel of time series you know gosh five years ago or whatever it was where it's like gosh if you would just talk to each other you would solve all your problems Um, because that communication it diffuses tension and it solves problems Um, and because of the rules of that polite society, that English society, effective communication is basically impossible. It's almost impossible because almost nothing is said directly. They, you know, if there's a problem, you avoid it. Or if, you know, if you, if you need to confront somebody about something, do it passive aggressively or go behind their back and see if you can get somebody else to do it. Right. And so because of those rules of politeness, it, it creates, it's almost inevitable that you would get tension that is good for stories like this i don't know stephanie you love um what what do you call it the the regency Regency romance region yeah Yeah. how does that ring true for you if at all i i I agree like that is really what makes some of these 
story so interesting is because of the lack of communication. As a reader, I get frustrated, especially with a book like Rebecca, because really, if our narrator had just opened up and even asked the simple question to anyone about Rebecca, not even necessarily just Maxim, I think things would have ended up differently for her. She would have been happier sooner instead of the frustration, because it is. There's so much of this book that I spent would, will you just talk to someone? And it got frustrating, which as I think is entertaining at times. Like I love feeling like I'm involved and I care and I'm interested in what the decision-making process of these characters are. And Rebecca, definitely this book fits directly into that lack of communication. If you would just talk to anyone. Of course, it also teaches me as a, a human now going, okay, this is what happens when I don't communicate. Something's <laughs> bothering me. Let me go talk to my husband now. So you don't end up because obviously living those kind of situations is not as entertaining as it is <laughs> reading about them. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. What, yeah. Do, what do you think, Allison? I agree. I mean, I remember a long time ago watching something. I mean, I was a kid and being like, if everybody just said what they meant or asked what they were wondering, all of this would be solved, you know. But how often do people even do that really in real life? I mean, um, you know, everyone's always holding something back or skirting around an issue or, you know, the majority of people fear confrontation or what they consider might turn into a confrontation and they'll go out of their way to avoid a confrontation. And if you have someone like Rebecca, nothing in her background has has made her ready for Maxim, uh, Mrs. Danvers, or or you know, Mannerly Estate. She she literally is a child and she has yeah. she hasn't been prepared for this at all. So um as a reader and as an author, I think feeling frustrated is actually a good thing because it means that you care. It means that you're involved and it means that you're going to like feel a little uh, elation when it finally comes around. But I think she had to earn that moment, you know, and I think that it was a fun part of her arc was, mm. you know, it was really a coming of age story for her, you know, it really yeah, was. It's, I, I could see this being a much, much less effective book if she hadn't been a fish out of water. Yeah. If she, you know, if she had already been part of high society and she was just marrying into a different family, if she knew the rules of the road, she'd be much more effective at navigating them. You know, e young as she was, she at least would have had a lot of more exposure to that sort of thing. Um, and now it's but be because she's not because she's an outsider, it's much more difficult for her. So, yeah, yeah I very, mean, I think when I'm choosing um, characters for a book, I don't want to choose the main a character to be fully capable and ready to handle what's in front of them or what they're going to face. I want to pick the one who absolutely is totally and completely ill-prepared for the moment. Mm. And and that's the journey to, to find their way to meet the moment and then overcome the moment, you know? So yeah, you, it would be far less interesting if Rebecca just waltzed into this and started bossing around Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> The narrator. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. The narrator. Sorry. This is, it's like, it, it's like Frankenstein. Sure. Yeah. Let's just call her Frankenstein. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you as a writer, be, like with this communication issue, 
Is that something you consciously look for, like ways to to make miscommunication part of the the tension in a story, or does that does it arise kind of organically, just by nature of the characters and you getting into their heads? How do you how do you create something like that as an author yourself? I always sort of work from an immersive point of view, you know, so I'm not sitting there. I always feel like I'm inside the story when I'm writing, so I'm not like outside trying to direct like a scene between two characters and have them miscommunicate. I'm actually whatever POV I'm in. And so then I just sort of naturally, it feels organic to me. Like this is how she would respond to this because I know her background so well and she's not ready for this moment. And then he's, this one over here is going to sense that she's not ready for this moment. He's going to protect himself by reacting in this way. And so I always just sort of, you know, do it from an organic sort of um, place of, of putting myself really in the shoes of the character. Not everybody writes like that. You know, some it's yeah. more of a chessboard, but I'm sort of inside it when I am creating my stories. Yeah. I mean, the the miscommunication thing is obviously, <laughs> this is all over the place, but my head, because we talked about that so much with the Wheel of Time, and Stephanie at least knows what I'm talking about. Um, that's that's where my head goes. And there are a couple of places in that series where I'm I'm sitting there reading it going, Robert Jordan just he just had them not communicate so that he could have tension. And so most of the time I bought it just fine. But there were a few places where I'm like, this feels a little forced on the characters that they don't know what's happening with each other or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but this but in Rebecca, it all felt I, I it, it all felt incredibly organic, incredibly uh, easy to buy as a reader. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciated that aspect of it. Um, okay, so I've got some more bullet points and stuff that I can bring up, but uh, do you guys have any points that you want to bring up, whether about the characters, the pro style, the structure, the whatever? I I'm, I don't want to monopolize. So what about you, Stephanie? So I did some research on Daphne Craig. Demario. Demario. Sorry, I'm going to slaughter this. Craig, help <laughs> me out. And I thought what was so interesting is how much her actual lifestyle and her her own personal story fed into Rebecca and mm. the way that she wrote. If you don't know anything about the author, she was kind of in that... Um, pre-transgender where she felt like she was she had a lot of relationships with other women because she felt like she was a man but this was before transgender was a thing and this whole idea of not being accepted by society I think the more I read about her and her story and some of how she felt with her relationships and watching her husband when her husband had his affairs and everything it really started making me feel like I was getting to know the author so well through the narrator of this book. Mm. And I don't know it. And I wouldn't have felt that if I hadn't done the research, if I hadn't looked more into, I was actually just looking up quotes from the book is what I was doing when I came across the, the biography of the narrator. And she is such an interesting woman. I don't know if either of you know anything more about her. The no. narrator or Daphne du Maurier? Daphne du Maurier. No, I, I didn't look it up. I'm not as uh, good a person or a podcaster <laughs> as you are. So. Uh, no, I, um, I 
the only thing I do know about, and we can circle back to that, but the only thing I did learn about is that there was some controversy with where did this story come from? And did she plagiarize it from this guy down in, it was like Brazil or Argentina or something like that. And, mm -hmm. uh, or did she plagiarize it from this person over here? And well, it was this whole, whole mess. It's a very Jane Eyre kind of story. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So mm -hmm. kind of just seems like one of those, uh, it's it's in the air like this this type of plot is just out there and so you can i'll always be accused with this type of story of lifting it from somewhere but i don't know i'm sure yeah. there's more to the story it's a classic gothic romance novel you know i mean the elements are all there and so it's 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 the elements of a of a of a gothic romance novel. I think it's probably most closely re related to Jane Eyre, and yet they're different books, and it's a different experience reading each one. So, yeah. So, Allison, who is the worst character in the book? And I don't mean the worst written character. I mean the one you would least want to spend time with. You know, like who is the villain? Who's the worst person here? Oh, Mrs. Danvers for sure. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's just so, terrifying. So tell, tell people about Mrs. Danvers. If they haven't read the book, who is Mrs. Danvers? Oh, Mrs. Danvers has been looking after Manderly, but more importantly, after Rebecca, since Rebecca was mm. a very young child. And she's completely enamored with the idea of Rebecca, because Rebecca's no longer with us. And um, nobody will take Rebecca's place, and certainly not the new Mrs. DeWinter. And uh, she's just a terror. And, you know, I would get upset at times, like, how can Max not see this? Why did Max keep her on? Why did he not fire her the moment, you know, Rebecca turned him dead? I mean, of course, we wouldn't have a story then. So I'm glad he kept her. But um, yeah, she's a, just a terrifying, um, but also a sad, tragic woman. She had no life of her own. Her life was via Rebecca. It was through whatever Rebecca did. And, you know, there is a bit of a tragedy with her, like with any good villain. I mean, I don't want them to be ever just all one thing. I think if you can put a little bit of personal tragedy in there, um, I don't know, it just makes it a little bit richer even. There, yeah, I totally agree. Because we have her on screen, I think it's good that she has some of that humanity, some, like some of backstory or reason for us to uh, feel sorry for her, even as we hate her. Right. I think that's all great. Rebecca, on the other hand, and now I, I'm afraid for those listening, we are going to get into spoiler territory for this 90 year old <laughs> book. Um, but with Rebecca, it's revealed in the end that she is, uh, she's not this perfect, angelic, wonderful person that, uh, that the narrator feared that she was. Um, you know, I can never live up to the perfection that, that Rebecca displayed. Well, it turns out she was awful. Um, and as her, as these descriptions come rolling in at the end of the book about what kind of person she was, um, it's clear that Rebecca was a sociopath. And I use that word advisedly, like clinically, literally very much a sociopath, incapable of human connection or regret, or, you know, she has no conscience. Um, and if she, so to your point, Allison, I think if Rebecca had been alive and on screen uh, in this book, 
she would have been a great villain in a way, but there's we as a reader can't connect with her. We can't form an emotional connection with her because we know that she's incapable of that connection. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, Mrs. Danvers is obviously somebody who is capable of that connection. And she did form that connection. She kind of, you know, she's a barnacle on the rump of, of Rebecca going through life, you know. And so when she dies, she has nothing left. Um, yeah, their interactions were chilling, just the worst. That that kind of when she first, when the narrator first shows uh, shows up at uh, Manderley, and uh, and Mrs. Danvers is showing her around the house and is perfectly unfailingly polite, but always with that undercurrent of you know I'm going to stab you in the dark and you'll never see it coming. Um, and it all builds and it builds and it builds until she actually does try to convince uh, the new Mrs. DeWinter to jump out of a window and kill herself. Because what good are you? Nobody loves you. Max doesn't want you. Just jump. Um, and it's uh, it's awful. It's terrifying. Yeah, she's the worst. She's the worst. Stephanie, what say you? <laughs> I don't know if I can say much more about her. Because like, she really she's a heartbreaking character because you can see where her love and her passion for Rebecca has misguided her, her new relationships that she is so in love with Rebecca and the life of Rebecca and the idea of who she feels Rebecca is that it definitely, it it has tainted her and her relationships with all these other people that to the point where, yes, she tries to convince another woman that she really doesn't even know to commit suicide because she's not Rebecca. And so it, I think that one scene reading through that is, was chilling. It really was as you're listening to her sickly sweet idea of just, just jump. It's okay. Like, I was like, who, who, why? No, like normal people don't do this. (laughs) Um, all right, so let's let's change gears a little bit um, and just talk about kind of uh, what type of story this is. It's a goth- gothic romance, um, which means that it, the way I kept picturing as it as I was reading through it, and I often picture this when I read gothic stuff, is that it's like when you look at a picture negative and all of the colors are inverted. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel reading this. It's a bit like... Um, you know, if you read Shakespeare, it's like, is it a tragedy or a comedy? Pick one and you kind of know the direction it's going to go. Um, even though they have a lot of the same kind of beats, the the beats are serving a different purpose and they're taking you down different paths, right? Um, and I, uh, so I, I really enjoy a good happy ending romance, uh, but I find myself really enjoying the gothic stuff as well where yeah it's a love story and it's a murder mystery and it's all these things that could lead to what is typically the happy ending and in this we don't really get that so much what what do you two prefer and why you know like the two sides of that coin which side do you prefer and why i'll kick it to you first allison um, you know, I always tend towards that. I mean, listen, I'm a huge Bridgerton fan. I love it. Um, and I, and I love a good Regency romance. Um, but I really kind of have a leaning <laughs> towards that sort of darker, 
more suspenseful thing. And I think Rebecca, without giving away spoilers, you don't get that classic happily ever after, but you get um, two people who have finally connected in a more real way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not totally without satisfaction um, because now they're finally on equal footing. And if anything, maybe she's a little bit stronger than Maxim by the end of it. And, um, and they're, they're meeting each other again, um, having survived something together. That's, that's made them both stronger. And I, I just kind of lean towards that, I guess. Yeah. What about you, Stephanie? Jedi or Sith, Stephanie, pick one. (laughs) Always prefer a romance. I am a romantic at heart. Um, I have a hard time classifying this book as a romance Mm. because I don't think that the point of the book is supposed to be our narrator's relationship with Maxim and their love story. Like I get at the very end. Yes, they're together, they're married and there is something, but it's so much more a coming of age novel that for me, I enjoy it because I really enjoyed it because it's not really a romance. It's not, that's not the point of the story. It's not the, the ending that we're trying to get to isn't the happily ever after. I think it's more of the narrator coming to realize that she doesn't have to be the child. She doesn't have to be treated like a child, like that. It's almost, I feel like if there was a sequel to this and we found out what happens between the the end of the book and those first two chapters where she's reminiscing that that would be more of the romance story where you actually see where these two have built a relationship and what's happening as they're now together as equals as opposed to this is more the narrator story of getting to the point where she can have a romance if Mm. that makes yeah yeah Yeah, and it's it's really tricky to talk about something like this because we keep saying romance but there's there's lowercase r romance that you're talking about stephanie and then there's uppercase r romance which you know the kind of the period in which these things are written and the style in which it's written Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh because it's it's not this isn't uh this isn't some kind of like clinical uh let's look at the clues and you know kind of murder mystery uh type of thing this is much more you know like you're saying allison we're we spend a lot of time describing the flowers and she she has a paragraph about a bee buzzing to a flower and then going inside and falling silent. You know, that yeah. sort of, it's the atmospheric, emotional, st- that style. So regardless of, of you know, what kind of uh, romantic connection that they share, it's still, it's still technically a romance, even if we don't have that. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with Stephanie that the romance isn't necessarily the driving force. It's, it's what got her to Manderley. Then it's what happens to her at Manderley. That really is the A story, the driving narrative, you know, narrative of this. Um, that's that it's the engine that got her there, but it's really about her journey. You know, I, I would agree with you, Stephanie, on that. It's, it's really more of a coming of age, more than a romance, like a, classic boy meets girl obstacle they come together (laughs) now they're you know it's it's darker than that and it's really about her growth as a as a character well and i think out of everyone she probably has a stronger written relationship with mrs danvers than she does with 
maxim. Yeah. You get so much more of their interactions together, their the way that they communicate with each other than she really does. Then you find out really anything with her and Maxim and how they communicate with each other. Cause most of it is just Maxim kind of brushing her off as being just ignorant. You're, I, you're sweet. You're, you're there. Thank you for being here. Where her conversations with Mrs. Danvers are a lot more, there's more depth to them. There's more intrigue. There's more passion to them, which I think is kind of interesting as a romance novel, like you, that your relationships really between two women and how they're viewing the narrator's new position in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's, um, let's meander our way toward the ending of this conversation. Um, I, I want to talk about the structure of the book and how effective it was for me. And I'm curious, uh, if it was effective in the same way or a different way for you guys. Um, we talk, uh, so being Brandon Sanderson fans, right? Stephanie and I read a lot of Brandon Sanderson books. Uh, the community talks a lot about the Sanderlanch. There's a moment where you get to the story and then something falls, some domino falls and the guts of the story just spill out everywhere and your mind is blown and it's, you know, face melting guitar solo, whatever. <laughs> I felt like this book had that. Um, but I bet it comes at different moments for people where it's, you know, hey, I'm enjoying the book. This is, uh, it's an interesting story. What, what well-drawn characters, uh, I'm, I want to keep reading. And then there's a point where you're like, all right, I'm done with the rest of my life until I'm done with this book. And for me, it was the conversation um, when, when Mrs. Danvers tries to get her to jump out the window. Um, and we are, by the way, I think we're safe to get into some spoilers for the 80-year-old book. So let's just talk about the ending. So she, she tries to do that. It doesn't work. And then it kind of at that point in the story, the dominoes just start falling and falling and falling. We find out that um, that the body that was recovered wasn't actually Rebecca and who killed her. And it turns out Max killed her. But for reasons uh, <laughs> that he gets into, because she was awful, because she was a terrible human being um, and she probably manipulated him into it. And it's just like all these fireworks are going off, like stuff that the bricks that had been laid, you finally get to see what the path was and what it was leading to. Uh, What was the moment for the two of you, if you had one, where this story goes from, I like it to, I must finish it. I, I, I would agree with you. It's when Danvers is trying to talk her out of the window. You know, um, I, I was in it from the start. Last night I dreamt of Manderley. I was like, oh, tell me more. You know, <laughs> he's the opening sentence and I was already in. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those lines that either sucks you in or not because you want to know more about Manderley in this dream. Um, but yeah, it, it gets really dark in that moment. And she has totally manipulated this young woman to this point. And um, really systematically broken her down to the point where she thinks I'm really close to getting her to doing this. And then I can be done with her and just go back to this house and my memories of Rebecca without this woman interfering. And the new Mrs. DeWinter doesn't do it. 
you know, um, it, but there's a moment where you assume she won't because she's your narrator of your story and you kind of need her to keep going and tell you the rest of it. And, you know, you know, she's dreaming of this. So, but at the same time, there's this feeling of this woman is so broken down and so weak and will, will she attempt it, you know? And when she doesn't do it, we know that she's coming into her own. This story is going to take a turn. Mm-hmm. And, and we're going to start getting some answers. What's really going on in this dark, shadowy, secretive fortress of a house. Yeah. Stephanie, did you have a moment or did nothing like that quite land for you? I think for me, it was her conversation with Max, where Max admits to her that he mm. was the one that killed Rebecca. Mm. That he was the one that, that after everything that Rebecca had done to him. How she had changed after that first week of marriage and he, she wasn't the same person. And when he finally opens up to, to our narrator, I think for me was like, okay, now, now I need to know before that I enjoyed it. It was a good book. I was, I had every intention of finishing it. It's not like I've ever felt like I don't want to finish this. But that conversation right there where I think you even, that's the first glimpse we really see of the true maxim as well that really was like okay let's let's finish this how how quickly can i get through this now because this has gotten exciting i love that conversation in part because it does for maxim what we've been talking about with mrs danvers where it humanizes the story that we've gotten about him up to that point where yeah he treats her terribly he treats her like a child he after their kind of whirlwind romance, they get back to Mandalay and he's aloof and he's distant. He's busy. He's, you know, I, I have other things to worry about. I can't just babysit you, child, you know, whatever. Um, and then we realize that he, what he did to his first wife, I certainly messed with his head and what she did to him before that. And so he's incapable of maybe that kind of connection that he knows that he needs and wants to have. Uh, but he can't quite bring himself to cultivate uh, in the right way. I love, love that conversation. And it changes the entire tenor of the book where it's about her trying to figure out if she can live up to this memory of Rebecca, if she can become the woman in the house, whatever. And then on a dime in that conversation, even in her own head, it's okay, how can we make sure that he doesn't get caught? How I, she says, I'll lie for him. I'll cheat for him. I'll, you know, I will do whatever I have to do to make sure that he doesn't get punished for this crime or whatever. And it changes everything in that moment. I think that's a great one to pick out, Stephanie, for when the narrator kind of grows up, so to speak. It's yeah. a really fascinating turn. I mean, it's the first time we see Maxim as being vulnerable and human with her. Um, it's the first time we, they're, finally communicating with each other and forming this connection. And, and we get to see her go from this really naive girl to like, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure, you know, Max isn't taken away or end up in jail or, you know, uh, and she's willing to lie, whatever it takes. And so they're finally coming together, these two. And it's, it's over this, over Rebecca because of Rebecca. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Stephanie. Well, there are so many fantastic quotes in this book. And I I wrote down like so many of them because they're fantastic. Is it the one about the bee going into the flower? Because yeah, I know, totally. <laughs> yes. yes, definitely. 
But there was a moment where um, our narrator is talking about Rebecca and how if Rebecca was alive, if she was just some woman that her husband was having an affair with, she could deal with it. But how do you deal with someone who is dead? And that fear that she always had and that pedestal that even not even knowing Rebecca, that she put Rebecca on. And I think having this conversation where you really feel out, find out who Rebecca truly was, there is a moment that our narrator has where the fear goes away. And I think that that was really powerful to me of that idea of no longer being afraid where she can finally come into her own. And that's when she finally starts standing up to Mrs. Danvers, when she finally really starts realizing that she has been afraid for so long that they're no longer that it part of her own problems that she's had have been her own fault that. Mm-hmm. And I think for so many people, that's a hard thing to always admit to yourself, to others mm-hmm. that this mm-hmm. is me. This was because of me. If I had tried and made an effort sooner, we would be in a different place. And I think that was another reason why that conversation was so powerful is that moment she stopped. She had decided to stop being afraid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she tries a lot through the book. Like I I was frustrated with the narrator many times, especially through the first half of the book with, you know, just say something, be assertive, try, you know, and and I'd have to pull myself back and go, okay, you know, she's probably what, 19 years old, maybe something like that. She's a very young person. She doesn't have the wherewithal for something like that. So take it easy on her. Um, And then, at a certain point, she does start to make efforts and, you know, she's going out and she's trying to um, she, she's making house calls to people around the, the town and and she's making an effort. She throws the party and she puts on the dress thinking, OK, I, you know, I'm going to give everybody a good shock and a good laugh. It'll be great. Uh, but every time she makes one of those decisions and tries to assert herself, the world just punches her right in the face and says, no, you sit down, <laughs> you know, like this poor girl goes through you know, just, I don't know. She goes through a lot and it's pretty heartbreaking to read, honestly. That uh, part is heartbreaking. Yeah. That, yeah. that just broke my heart. Well, let's uh, wrap up with some uh, final thoughts. Just a- any any final thought you want on Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I will say that the more of these Gothic uh, novels I read, the more I really want to have my own very, very large estate just because it seemed like stories will happen there. Um, and I'd love to have some stories. Uh, so, you know, my little uh, bungalow here in Utah just doesn't quite lend itself to the uh, the stories I feel like I, I need for my autobiography eventually. So, no, I, I really love the, the you know, the dark, lonely house on a hill. Like, I, it's, I'm coming to really enjoy that trope quite a bit. What about you, Stephanie? Any final thoughts? Um, I think the one thing that I would recommend is actually reading the book. I, my first Mm. time through this book was listening to it. And I feel like I, because of the, the way that she writes is so descriptive. I would have enjoyed it a lot more if I had the book in my hand where I could actually see the words follow along with them as opposed to just having them in my ear. Mm. Um, So I recommend this book and I recommend it's very rarely that I recommend just flat out reading a book and kind of skipping over the audio first, but I recommend read it, hold the book, read it, 
see the words, see how they're written and the way that the sentences go together. I think for this kind of book, that's kind of important. I did um, uh, both. So Whisper Sync for the win, right? So I had the Kindle edition. And then, you know, if I was gardening, I'd put on the audiobook. Um, and I think I agree with you for the most part, except that the narrator, and I apologize, I don't remember what her name is, is so good. Whoever read this book is so, so good at it that uh, uh, I, I, I do like her narration quite a bit. Um, all right, Allison, final thoughts on Rebecca. Well, gosh, it was really interesting. I listened to it um, this time around, as opposed to all the times I've read it, this copy that's falling apart. And um, yeah, I thought the narrator was extraordinary, but I would agree. And I, I loved listening to it and her, her version of it. Um, and I thought it, she really brought to life the beautiful writing. Um, but I would agree with Stephanie. Like it is a slightly more enjoyable experience to be able to sit down and savor those paragraphs and descriptions and let her pull you into the page of that story. Um, I'm just really glad you guys liked it. Because I just, after I suggested it and sent that email, I was like, oh no, <laughs> should I have done that? Um, should I have gone with something a little more fantasy? But um, I'm, I'm glad you liked it, that you gave it a chance. I mean, it's still all these times later in as many different ways as I've experienced this book at the different times and phases of my life it's still up there is, is definitely one of my favorites and certainly a little bit of inspiration for, you know, anytime I delve into a character who feels isolated and unsure and which is a lot of my characters in young adult fiction. So, mm. Yeah. I'm really glad you chose it. I I've said this before. Um, I think I said it to you, but you know, in the uh, virtual green room beforehand, but I love the author shelf series in part because I get to read books like this, or I, I should say I have to read books like this. And then it turns out, yeah, you really should have read this years ago. This is fantastic. <laughs> so like we did one, Brian McClellan shows a, a biography of a revolutionary French officer. Brent Weeks did the Odyssey, you know, things that you might not think, you know, I should, I should sit down and, oh, geez, first of all, I'm going to get bombed by the jets overhead, but you don't think, oh, yeah, I'm going to sit down and read Rebecca because it's a Tuesday and I've got a few hours. Like, no, you don't. Yeah. I, I, would, I wouldn't have picked this up. So thank you for doing it, um, for, for recommending the book. I, yeah, I love, I love stuff like this that comes out of left field for me. So, Allison, tell us a little bit about Stealing Infinity. It comes out uh, June 28th, which, if I do my job, is tomorrow for people listening to this or, or watching the YouTube video. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about Stealing Infinity. Uh, Stealing Infinity. The, the elevator pitch is a teen girl with an unusual gift gets kicked out of school and sent to a secret academy for time travelers where huh? she must solve an elaborate puzzle of history and time. One where she finds out she just might be one of the missing pieces. And it's being pitched as the Da Vinci Code meets Riverdale, which... I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> that works for um, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's the elevator pitch. That's fantastic. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell people about it and what how it came to be and what, yeah. uh, what, what was the germ of this book? Yeah, you know, I had taken um, five years off from writing from writing anything, really. I thought I might be retired. Um, I had written like 
27 books in, you know, a fairly short amount of time. And I traveled to five continents doing book tours and just a really, really busy, nonstop, go, go, go kind of time. And I got to a point of just being so burnt out creatively on the business, all of it. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to step back for a while. And that turned into five years. Um, in my head, though, because, you know, writers are always writing, you're always collecting stories, you can't listen to a conversation and not try to turn these two people into characters. It's just something we're always doing. And then the pandemic hit. And, you know, I was I'm usually at home, but now I had to be at home. And I just thought, well, I do have this idea I've been playing with, you know, at Time Travel Academy. So maybe I'll just sit down and write this. And, you know, there was so much fear and uncertainty of that time. And so I found it really enjoyable to sit down at the computer and create a world of my control and my doing and and I make the rules and, and, and I can immerse myself in something else and out of this current world that we were all living in, you know? So it was, it provided a great escape. It provided me a sense of control. And, um, I got that spark back where I was enjoying creating characters and putting words on the page. And for the first time in a long time, there was no worry about what am I going to do with this book and who is it for or any of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know if I was going to do anything with it. I was just sitting down writing for the pure pleasure of writing again. And I probably hadn't really done that since the very first book, right? Because once you start getting book deals, now you're doing deadlines and expectations and all of that. So it was just a really freeing, fun experience. And of course, by the time I finished, I got practical and called my agent, you know, <laughs> and said, well, maybe I'm coming back. So yeah. Um, yeah, that that was the journey of it. But it was nice to be able to sort of take my time. And, and uh, it's, I guess there are similarities to things that I've written before in that, you know, it's a young adult. There's a heavy romantic element. There's a heavy sort of supernatural element, fantasy element to it. But but it does include themes and ideas that I haven't explored before. And that was really fun, too. Mm, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, so I'm, I'm not a creative on the same level as you are, Allison. But I can say there's nothing quite as satisfying as feeling that burnout and thinking, you know, this, this might be it. <laughs> I, I need to go find something else to do with my life. And then it comes back and it hits you and you're like, all right, I'm ready to do some more stuff. It's, it's really a great feeling. So mazel tov on that. That's really fantastic. Um, all right. Well, let's wrap it up there. I hope everybody will go check out Stealing Infinity. Uh, again, comes out June 28th. So yeah, pretty much out by the time you hear this. Uh, please go check it out. Allison Noel, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, and hope you enjoyed your time on The Author's Shelf. I loved it. Thanks so much for having me. It was really nice meeting you guys. Cheers. And thank you, Stephanie. And thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, again, go to thelegendarium.com. You can find links there. Um, you know, I mentioned Patreon at the beginning of the episode. Yes, we would love your support. If you like what we do, uh, it means a lot and, you know, keeps this ship afloat if you uh, pitch in a little bit. So that's great. But it also has a link to our Discord server where there are, Stephanie, do you know? It's like 1300 people now all jibber jabbering about fantasy literature and it's fantastic it's the nicest corner of the internet i can't recommend it highly enough and i know that with a book like rebecca there's a lot of stuff that we didn't get to in this conversation 
And so if you'd like to continue the discussion, let's do it there. Uh, so go check out the Discord link if you haven't yet. You'll find it at thelegendarium.com. Stephanie, Allison, listeners, thank you again, and we will see you next time.